In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. There's an old story from the late Middle Ages, perhaps a folk legend, perhaps first written down by the Italian writer uh, Boccaccio. But it goes like this. There were three young men, friends, studying at the great University of Paris. Now, two of the men were Christians, but the third was not. In some versions of the story, he's Jewish, in others, Muslim. But, like what they perceived to be good Christians, his two friends sought in every way to convert him to Christianity. They took him to the various churches and cathedrals, showed him the glories of Gothic architecture, the transcendence of stained glass. Then they took him to hear a lecture by one of the leading theologians of that time, brilliant, brilliant in its analysis. And then they took him to the slums of Paris, to the worst parts of it, to, uh, to see monks and nuns and other Christians feeding the poor, taking care of them, giving them a place to stay. But their friend remained unconvinced. And then the, the two Christian friends heard a terrible, heard terrible news. Their friend was going to, for a visit to Rome, to the holy city. Oh, said to each other, this is terrible, this is terrible. He will see the church, all the scandals and sins of the church up close. He will see the many scummy undersides, undersides of, our, of our church, of our faith. They were in despair. But time passed, six or seven months, and they heard that their friend was back from his trip to Rome. And they heard some really amazing news. Their friend had become a devout Christian. Amazed, they rushed to the room of their friend, now a devout Christian. And they said, well, here you become a Christian. The friend said, yes. They said, but you went to Rome. Yes. Well, did you see the Pope walking in the gardens with his current mistress? Mm-hmm. Well, did you see the nobles and the cardinals and some bishops meeting to buy and sell church offices for gain? Yeah, all too often. Well, then did you see in the marketplaces those charlatans pretending to sell relics and indulgences to the poor? Oh yes, all too often, he said. Well, his friends demanded, why in the world did you become a Christian? And their friend said, well, you know, I thought about it. I thought about what I was seeing day in, day out. And I realized that any institution, any organization with as many faults, with as many sins, with as many screw-ups, for want of a better word, uh, any, church, any organization, any institution with all those terrible self-induced uh, calamities, that it still survived, and not just survived, it attracted new and fervent believers. Well, I thought he said, there's only one answer. That institution, the church, must be of divine origin and divine protection to this day. <laughs> well, 
It's a funny way to look at the reality of the church. But I've been thinking about, about the church and what it is and what it is called to be. Both the church as great uh, transnational institution across time and place, and the church, or churches, small, discrete bodies in a particular place, in a particular time, parish churches, for want of a better word. Now, we've just been through some really hard times with that pandemic, which, please God, is mostly over by now. That pandemic and all the changes and restrictions it, it imposed, and not just that, but all the all the problems, all the issues that seem to plague our nation and our world. We've come out of it, but we're changed. How are we to live now? That's certainly a question for organizations, for governments, for individuals. But I think it's a particularly pertinent question for our church, whether the great church, universal, or the parish church of the plains. Uh, so, some scholars have said that we are moving to a post-Christian era. Other, other scholars say we're already in a post-Christian era. So how are we, as Christians, as members of the Christian community, the body of Christ, how are we, how are we to go on? How are we to live? Well, I think before even offering any ideas, and I just have thoughts and ideas, no plan, no set of clear, clearly marked steps, we have to recognize that that question and its answers are not first and foremost about us. We're not the primary here. No, it's about God and God's will. A very smart person once said, the church does not have God's mission. Rather, God's mission as a church, or church is. We are here to respond in love to God's love and to bring that love into the world. But how? How today? A tough question. And I think first we must realize that to answer it, even partially, We'll take all of ourselves, we'll take all, all of our gifts and all of those qualities we have, none more important than our mind, our intelligence. In today's epistle lesson, Paul says very clearly, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We have minds to think to guide us in action and to review that action afterwards. Now, I don't believe that the center of Christianity is simply a, a set of doctrines or beliefs. No, there are important doctrines, important realities that shape our faith, our faith and our actions. But our call as Christians is to ponder, and then act to, to try to, to figure out those doctrines, the incarnation, the resurrection, even that most mysterious trinity. How do those doctrines and belief, how will they shape and guide 
who we are and what we are and what actions we are called to. What actions? What outreach? It's a tough question, especially moving into an unknown phase of our world. But I'm reminded that today, uh, August 27th, is actually the day to remember uh, Thomas Gallaudet and Henry Winter Style. Uh, the Episcopal Church, in its wisdom, has a wonderful book, used to be called Lesser Feasts and Fasts. It's now called Holy Women, Holy Men. But it's, it devotes a day to the remembrance of people whose lives we might imitate, whose understanding might help our understanding. Anyway, August 27th, Thomas Gallaudet. His father was the uh, founder and head of the first school for the deaf in Hartford, Connecticut. His mother was profoundly deaf. He grew up, he went to college, and in college he began to discern a call to the ordained ministry. Eventually, he was ordained an Episcopal church and went to his first assignment in a, in a big church in New York City. But from that moment on, he devoted in various ways his ministry to, to bringing the gospel and the church to deaf people and to bringing deaf people into the church. He developed a worship service for deaf people. Eventually, he founded the very first Episcopal church for the deaf in this country, in New York City. And he was always supporting um, uh, programs to reach out to the deaf and the deaf and blind. Um, he, he mentored many, many uh, men and women, and one of, one of whom was a young man, Henry Winter Stiles, uh, who was a brilliant, brilliant scholar, although profoundly deaf from scarlet fever. And Henry Winter Stiles discerned also a call to the ordained ministry. And he wanted to be ordained to serve in that capacity. But there were a lot of people, including quite a few church administrators, who said, no, you can't be a priest. You, you're deficient in one of the five basic sense, senses. You can't be a priest. You're deaf. Well, uh, Thomas Gallaudet continued uh, to support him and eventually was one of the prime movers in the ordination to the priesthood of Henry Winter Stiles, the first, but definitely not the last, deaf person to be ordained into our church. Well, I think that both, I think that Thomas Gallaudet, in his life, was introduced to needs, needs that weren't being met, to people, the deaf, who seemed to be outside the church just because of their deafness. I wonder, should we ask ourselves today, who are the outsiders in our world? Who are those who have, who, have no, who have need of the church and the faith, but are considered beyond its pale. Who are they, and what are we called to do to bring them in? Because, of course, the church, 
our church, all churches, are called to be inclusive, not just to welcome all people slightly patronizingly when someone does not seem to live up to our standards of education, uh, education, intelligence, economic status, social status, but to value each person and the contributions they make, they make as essential, essential. I, our uh, Old Testament lesson, the story of uh, the birth and rescue of Moses, uh, reminds us that sometimes the most insignificant people just doing their work make the greatest contributions to God's plan and purpose. Because, quite frankly, if those two women, and women, you know, down at the bottom of the pecking order, uh, hadn't done their, hadn't continued as midwives, but yet using that calling, using that job to listen to what God wanted and using their smarts, one might say, to carry it out. Without the contributions of those two women, there would be a lot less Hebrew men to go on the exodus. There would be no Moses or Aaron to lead the exodus. Everybody is important. And each work, each contribution is essential. Sometimes I wonder who are the people whose contributions to our church or to the world seem so insignificant, yet are ultimately so critical. But the church, the church uh, is, is a community of various and different people and skills, people with different ideas, different, um, different values, different priorities. Um, when we read St. Paul's letter to the Romans, we see that he points out that there are different gifts, different calls, and all are needed. But sometimes, all too often, and Paul learned this and we know it today, trying to be a community of different uh, views, different opinions, different values, is tough going. But it's what we're called to as a Christian church. And sometimes I think, that if the church today has anything to offer this world, to offer this world and this nation where dumping on one's enemies, trying to drive them out of existence, has become something of a, a blood sport today, I think the great witness we in the church can offer is, is to show that a community made up of people of very different backgrounds, beliefs, values, et cetera, et cetera, that it can continue to exist and thrive. We can be with each, each other, we can love each other, and maybe not exactly agree with one another. We will remain as a community. Yes, we will remain as a community, but sometimes, sometimes, we don't know what to do, or sometimes we just plain do the wrong thing. But the ethos of the church, the bedrock of God's love, is, is not 
a standard of success. It's not a standard of achievement, perfection, no blemishes any place. Our gospel lesson this morning is often uh, pointed out as the confession of St. Peter, Peter being the first of the disciples to, dis to discern and state what, what, the, what the reality of Jesus was. But from what we know from the New Testament, most of the stories about Peter are about his mistakes, his wrong turns, yes, even his sins. And indeed, if we, want, if we read just four more verses, four more verses in that chapter of Matthew, we would discover that Jesus, trying to teach his disciples more and more about what the Messiah really was, about the need to suffer, is rebuked by Peter, and in fact, in turn, rebukes Peter, says to Peter, you've got it all wrong. Satan, get behind me. Eugene Peterson, writing about this passage, says, Peter was the poorest choice Jesus could have made for building a new community of faith. And that's probably why Jesus started with him, so that none of us would disqualify ourselves if Peter was fit to be the foundation of the church, then there's plenty of room for all of us there, for all of us. My friends, we're, we're sort of embarking on a new, a new kind of time, a new world after the pandemic and all the things that have happened in the last several years. And, and change of any kind can be unsettling. Sometimes, often, it's scary, it's bitter. It's hard to let go of beloved patterns or activities. And we know, we know all too well that sometimes our endeavors begun with the best intentions, with hope and promise, sometimes they fail. They do. But that's not what the church is about. It's about moving into the world as it now is, seeing the needs, proclaiming the gospel, showing that everyone is loved by God and so by us. And we do this now, not in some past old ways, but what, what is needed now. An old hymn, a favorite of mine, says, new occasions teach new duties. And yes, there may be new, new duties, new, new ways of being and giving that we haven't found yet. But it's our call to look for them. Because as C.S. Lewis says, the present is the only time in which any duty can be done, any grace received. It's our call. It's our call to see ourselves as participants in God's ongoing story, to see ourselves, to let ourselves be transformed, difficult as that might be, into those persons who will support, who will move, move with God into the new and the unknown. Are we willing to that, do that?
Are we willing to do that? Amen.